Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm delighted to welcome back for part three, Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont. Mike Beaumont, welcome back to Facing the Canon. Great to be with you again. This is our part three. And can I remind you, this is part of a four session, four part series, and we're focusing on the Bible. And we've looked at the Bible in part one. And in part two, we focus more on the Old Testament. And today we are focusing, Mike, on the New Testament. Can we begin with how much time has elapsed from the last book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament? Yeah, about two seconds, which is about how long it takes you to turn the page, isn't it? Well, (laughs) no, that's not the answer, is it? But it's easy to think that, isn't it? It is. In fact, as we've turned that page to the one that says New Testament, um, over 440 years has passed. So Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we date around 440 BC. So we've got over four and a half centuries about which the Bible tells us absolutely nothing. None of the prophets are speaking. It's almost as if God has said to his people, well, you're not listening, so I'm not speaking. And yet in those 440 years, God will be doing all sorts of stuff ready to set the scene for the story of the New Testament. We commence the New Testament with four Gospels, Mm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why have we got four accounts? The interesting thing is, initially, there were probably more than four accounts. It's interesting that Luke begins his gospel by addressing his patron Theophilus and saying uh, that many have undertaken to write an account of the things that have happened among us. So many. So it looks like several people had, if not written full gospels, written short accounts and so on. And Luke says that he carefully investigated all of those, used them as his source material in drawing his. But under the Holy Spirit's guidance, eventually we were given just the four that you've itemised. Why those four? Well, it's like each of them gives an angle. Uh, It's clearly the same story. It's the same Jesus in all of them. And yet each of them had their own particular interest that they wanted to bring out in their Gospels. And I often liken it to today reading about the same event in several different newspapers, you know, and depending whether the newspaper's left wing or right wing, you get essentially the same event, but a a different thing drawn out of it. And each of those gospel writers will tell us the same story about the same Jesus, but highlight some of the things that were really important to them and put them together. And we get this beautifully rounded picture of who Jesus was and why Jesus came. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew about the Messianic prophecies. So why did they not recognise Jesus? I think it's because he came in a package that they weren't expecting. You know, I still find that a challenge today. All of us have our packages of how we think God works and how we think God ought to work, maybe in the way that our church does it. You know, and then another church comes along and does it differently. And it can be so easy for us to think, well, you know, that's not how God does it. And then we miss out on the blessing that could have been ours if we picked up on some of that as well. That's the story of church history. 
And the thing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, absolutely, they had these scriptures, but they were convinced that Messiah would come in a particular way. And what they had emphasized from the Old Testament was that part that spoke of Messiah coming as a victorious conqueror. And so by the time of Jesus, there was great messianic expectation. But most people were expecting, first of all, a political and military deliverer who would raise an army and what those Romans and clear the land of them and set up the kingdom of God on earth. Of course, when Jesus comes, he comes not with a sword, but with a cross. Very, very different. For the Pharisees in particular, these practitioners of the law, their belief we know by New Testament times from Jewish writings that have been found, they believed that if only every good Jew would keep the law perfectly for one day, then Messiah would come. And here was this pesky Jesus who kept breaking all these jolly laws, which is why they were doing things like, why are your disciples gathering corn on a Sunday and rubbing it and, and eating it? And why are you healing that man? Don't you realize that you could be stopping Messiah from coming? How crazy when Messiah was standing in front of them. So they didn't see it because they got their blinkers on of expectation of how it would look when God was to act and therefore missed what God did when he did act in Jesus. When um, Paul saw was on the Damascus road, uh, Jesus revealed himself mm. to him. Why didn't Jesus reveal himself to Caiaphas and to Pilate? <laughs> well, in a sense, he did, didn't he? He was, he was there in front of them. They had heard about all that he had done. It was not that they knew nothing of Jesus. They knew very much. People like Caiaphas had his spies out and his contacts out. They knew thoroughly well what Jesus was doing. But you see, what matters at the end of the day is, is our heart. Yes. God's looking for a soft heart. And people like Caiaphas and the priests and the Pharisees, they had decided, as I said, what God would do when he came. So they, they ignored, uh, they must have heard or even seen Absolutely. Jesus feeding the 5,000, uh, healing the blind, uh, healing the crippled. They must have heard or seen it. Absolutely. And, but and they ignored it. Yeah, and remember in some of the gospel stories, we actually get accounts of miracles. And then the Pharisees coming and saying, why did you heal that man on the Sabbath? So they clearly had seen these things. I mean, imagine, John, a miracle happening in front of you, but you rejecting it or not able to accept it because it didn't come in your package or your way of doing or your church's way of doing things or mine. Yes, but would it not have engaged some kind of curiosity and intrigue? You know, Lazarus had been dead for four days. You, I'd want to go meet him. I know. But what does it say in the Gospels that they tried to kill him? Yes. This is a crazy thing, isn't it? This guy's been raised from the dead and then the religious leaders want to kill him because of the advertising that he's doing for Jesus. Jesus. This is how much they had hardened their hearts. I think this is a huge challenge to us to try and keep soft hearts when God is doing something and it looks a bit different. 
to how my church does it, my denomination does it, my group, my history, to just be soft and tender and open because we could miss something significant that God was doing just like they had done. Whereas Paul, you could say, well, Paul certainly seemed against Jesus, didn't he? Absolutely. But you know, deep down, that guy was passionate for God. The reason he was opposing these Christians- yeah, he was, was zealous. He was zealous. He did have a genuine love for God. It was just misfocused. And all it needed was an encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus for him to say, oh my goodness, I got it wrong. And his whole life is turned round. So the softness of our hearts and the openness of our minds is really important to God and we could miss things just as easily as they did if we aren't careful. So the four Gospels, Mike, we have substantial teaching from Jesus. And if you had to summarise what that teaching is, what, what was he trying to communicate? Uh, I probably sum it up in a couple of ways from... Um, particularly from what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Synoptic means told from the same angles, from the same viewpoint. They're, they're very similar in their approach. It's pretty clear um, his message was, well, what we read at the beginning of Mark's gospel, uh, that he went out and proclaimed, the time is near, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the good news. So the heart of his message, by the way, is not repent, <laughs> the heart of his message is the kingdom has come. What do we mean by the kingdom? The rule of God. The rule of God is starting to break in. Why is it here? Because I'm here, Jesus, the son of God. The kingdom is starting to break in. God's rule is starting to come. Therefore, repent, because repent is the way in, acknowledging that you got it wrong, your way of living has not been right, turning back to God doing it his way and letting him be your king and see the difference that happens when you let God be king. So I think that's one of the key thrusts of those gospels. It's very much about the kingdom is breaking in. God's rule is breaking in. Get ready, line up with it. This is exciting. Come and join the party. I think the other thing I would say is that the Gospels reveal to us that this kingdom is coming through the person of Jesus, the Son of God come into this world. And perhaps that emphasis comes out more particularly in John's Gospel, where we get a lot of focus about Jesus himself. Now, this is not different to what we see in the synoptics. It's another angle on it. And the focus here is, is very much on Jesus, who John describes in chapter one as the word, the eternal word, who breaks into this universe and into our world at a moment in time. The word was made flesh and was revealed to us. And God himself breaks into this world. So this message of the kingdom is, is now not by some prophet, not by some king, not by some priest. It's by God himself coming into this world and bringing that good news. And Mark in his gospel picks that up. He, he says the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophet, and he quotes from Isaiah and Malachi, two promises of what God was going to do about the coming of the Lord. Make way, a straight path for the coming of the Lord 
Now, when Isaiah had prophesied that, who had he meant? The Lord God. And that's who we're going to encounter in my story, Mark's telling you. This is a story about the coming of God himself into this world, just like he promised. And you're going to see that coming through the person of his son, Jesus. Now, let me tell you his story and convince you of that. And that whole story, Mike, is filled with supernatural happenings, miracles and healings. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. Why don't we see more of that today? Yeah, do you know what? My short answer is I don't know. Um, And in my own life and ministry, I've constantly sought to pray for people who are sick. And uh, thank God I have seen people healed. Uh, Sometimes in the days that follow, I've seen examples of instantaneous healing when I've prayed for people. And I've seen times when I've prayed for people and they've gone away as sick as they were when they came to me. Why does that happen? The short answer is I don't know. What I do resist is the idea that it is because of their lack of faith, dumping it on them. I I think that is so unhelpful to people when I say, well, John, I prayed for you, didn't get well. It it must be your lack of faith because I don't want my ministry to look bad, do I? So I, I don't know. But what I know is this, is that Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the good news and to heal the sick. And I'm going to keep doing both. Does everyone get saved to whom I preach the gospel or you preach the gospel? No. 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 But will that stop you preaching the gospel? No. Absolutely (laughs) not. We will keep on preaching the gospel and find those who are going to be saved. And I will keep on praying for the sick until I see those who are, are healed. And those who aren't, do you know what? I'm just going to say, Lord, I don't know. I don't understand that. But I know you love them. You care for them. You're still with them. I'll keep praying for them. And I'm not going to give in on that. Absolutely. Jesus came into the world, Mike, to give his life. And um, that beautiful verse in John three sixteen: for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave his life. Why did he give his life? It is incredible, isn't it? Um, But the Gospels reveal to us something of what was going on there. You see, when, when human beings started turning away from God that we looked at in one of our previous episodes that we've talked about, And at that moment, sin came in. A bit of a religious word, isn't it? But it's people doing stuff their own way and finding it doesn't work. And and sin came in and not only spoiled their life, it actually started to form a barrier between them and God. It was a block. God's, uh, the Bible tells us God is a holy God. He he can't can't bear to look at sin. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes because, you know, we can, you know, we can shrug our shoulders about things that go wrong. But God can't. He's so morally pure. He, he can't bear to look on sin and evil and stuff that goes wrong. But God loves us incredibly. So here are human beings who ought to fix their sin but can't. And here is God, who can fix human sin, but it would be a bit unfair if he did. And so God says, I have a plan. 
Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that mystery of the Trinity in heaven, agree together that the Son will come to earth, not as some sort of Clark Kent Superman, still God but pretending to be a man until he rips his shirt off and reveals who he is underneath. Now the Bible tells us through the mystery of the incarnation and the virgin birth, God truly, fully, completely, absolutely became a real, perfect human being. Shows us how to live, shows us how to respond to God, models life for us, but more than that, as the perfect human being, can now go to the cross to pay the price for sin. The one who hadn't sinned, whose sheet was clean, says, I'll go instead of you, John. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. It yes. leads to death. Yes. And because of your sin, John, Mike, death's all that can follow. But Jesus said, you know what? Death has no hold on me because there's been no sin, but I'll, I'll go in your place. And so we get this picture in the New Testament of Jesus dying in our place as our substitute. You know, I think anyone who follows sport or football or anything understands the concept of a substitute. You know, one player just can't carry on any longer and the manager calls him off, holds his board up and the other one goes on in his place because mm. he's fit and can do it. And Jesus was the perfect son of God, the lamb of God, God's offering for us. Absolutely sinless. Satan and sin had no hold on him, but he gives his life in place of us. So that as we put our trust in him, the benefits that he won through that death, life forevermore, can be ours, not his. He didn't need it and he gives it to you and me as we simply believe. And it was God himself who did this for us. Wow. Absolutely, Mike, wow. But then, of course, the resurrection, which features significantly in the Gospels, yeah. that Jesus rose from the dead and authenticated everything that he said and everything that he did. And what is interesting there, Mike, is that he then um, taught the disciples before he the ascension. And during that 40 day teaching period, he neither added nor withdrew what he had taught the previous three years. That's right. So we got to take that seriously. Absolutely. Uh, it's like he's reinforcing. He teaches them about the kingdom of God, Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts. He's unpacking more of it. I think what he's doing is he's saying, now do you see? Do you see now in the light of the resurrection? And as you say, the resurrection is God's authentication that his sacrifice had been accepted, but that sin and death couldn't hold him. And God raises him from the dead to prove it's worked, it's paid for. And now in those 40 days, I think what Jesus was doing was saying, do you see now? Do you see what I was telling you? Because often we find, particularly in things like Matthew's gospel, Jesus increasingly explaining to his disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and be crucified and, and, and be put to death and ra be raised again. And of course, they, they don't understand what he's talking about. And I think in those 40 days, you think, do you get it now? <laughs> did you see? Did you, did, can we go back? Can we revisit that? Oh, that's what you were talking about. That's what I was talking about. And the message now 
is not only reinforced, but is highlighted in yellow, you know, it's, it, it's suddenly in capital letters. Now they've got it. And now as he returns to heaven at the beginning of the book of Acts at the Ascension, his disciples can be empowered to go out with that message. And Luke follows his gospel with another volume. Yeah, part two. Part two. Yeah, um, book of Acts starts with in my first book, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach during his time among us. First book, Theophilus, go back to Luke. You'll find that Luke begins with dear Theophilus, probably his patron, the guy who'd pay it for the production of the book. You know, ink and parchment were really expensive in those days. So it's like Luke is saying, in my gospel, I told you about what Jesus began to do and teach. Now in this book, implication, I'm going to tell you about what Jesus went on to do through the church that he left behind, through his followers. And we get this fantastic story uh, in the book of Acts where Jesus, before he goes back to heaven, you know, they want to know, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking old model. And he said, that's ah, not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts is this story, this account of, of how that happens. And the church ends up in Rome. There is Paul in Rome under house arrest, freely teaching, it says, about the kingdom of God, they might have arrested him, but you can't stop the advance of the gospel. Mm. So it's certainly a two-part work. Some think maybe even Luke intended a third part of the story of what happened when Paul got released from that house arrest, which we know about from his letters, uh, and went on and perhaps took the gospel as far as Rome before eventually being taken and tried and ultimately uh, beheaded as a Roman citizen, martyred for his faith. But you can't stop the power of this gospel, no, Luke it, wanted us to know. It's the, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit, Absolutely. isn't it? And we read about the work of the Holy Spirit through his people, through his church, uh, which is continuing today. And there's some very dramatic stories in there. Uh, for example, um, Sapphira and Ananias. Ananias. What a story. A, a bit of deception. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? It comes in the context of a huge spirit of generosity flooding the early church. And we get stories of, of them you know, putting their resources into a common pot. This is not enforced communism. This, this was joyous overflow because of what Jesus had done for them. And people like Barnabas, who had a field to spare, uh, selling it and laying the money at the feet of the apostles. Why? To help those who were less fortunate in the church. He, he, is, he is part of life in Christ in the early church that we don't always hear as much of these days, an incredible generosity towards the poor. And then that's followed in Acts chapter 5 by this story of Ananias and Sapphira who wanted to look good. Uh, and they were pretty wealthy. They had some property and they clearly conspired together to say, do you know what? What we need to do is we could sell that field. We'll probably get X amount for it, but we'll tell the apostles that we only got Y amount and we'll keep the difference. And then we'll look really good. 
So they sell the field. They go and lay the money, the feet of Peter. And Peter says, you know, was this the amount you got for it? He said, oh, yes, it was. And Peter says, why did you set your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? God gave him what we call the word of knowledge, something he couldn't have known any other way than through the Holy Spirit. And he was out to trick not just the church, Peter says, but the Holy Spirit, God himself. And he drops down dead. And the servants carry him out and bury him. And then the wife turns up and Peter says to her, tell me, is this the amount that you got for the field? And she says, oh, yes. And she drops down dead as well. That's pretty strong stuff. But you see, I think what's happening here is God is saying, this new community of my people, I, I can't have this stuff creeping in so early at the beginning. And so God deals with it pretty ruthlessly. And the story ends by saying that fear came upon the whole church. And I thought... I bet it jolly well did, and they were probably all checking their bank account if they'd really given the amount that they said they would. But you know what? The issue wasn't how much they gave. It never is how much we gave. The issue was they had tried to deceive and tried to make themselves look better in their giving than they really were. And God said, "Uh uh-uh. It's unacceptable. We don't have that in my church. What's sad, Mike, is sadly the church has been contaminated Sure. And um, it's quite blemished. But as we read the Gospels, as we read Acts, we read what we should be. Exactly. You know, uh, sometimes people get into a bit of a false argument with from Acts saying, you know, does Acts model for us how the church ought to be today? And my answer always is, well, yes and no. And the trouble is, we say the yes to the wrong thing and the no to the wrong thing. What we ought to be saying where it is normative for us should be things like powerful preaching of the gospel, praying for the sick, incredible generosity of spirit, getting behind mission, uh, being ready to follow Jesus, even if they take our life away. That should be normative for us rather than should we have just deacons or deacons and elders? And, and what about bishops? Are we elected? And the church so often has tried to make that stuff, the structural stuff, normative, whereas I would see it as formative. Hey, here's, here's how you could form the church. But even in Acts, there are different ways of churches being led in Jerusalem and Antioch and so on. And what we need to focus on are, are those things that are the powerhouse of the church going out and taking the good news of Jesus rather than how many deacons should we have? And are we allowed to have deacons and elders? And, and, and is a bishop the same as an elder? Hey, you know, I think there's quite a variety of how church is structured in the New Testament. What there's not a variety of is how church gets on with its work. This is the powerhouse of God there, designed to take the message of Jesus that can change the world. Amen. Mike. A joy to have you on Facing the Canon. Thank you for joining us. Been great to be with you again. Really enjoyed our time together. I hope that has inspired you as we've looked at the Gospels, as we looked at the Book of Acts. Part four next week on the letters and the Book of Revelation. Thank you for joining us. Please join us again on Facing the Canon. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.
If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.